0: Log Talk Radio.
1: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the Eastern family. Tonight's broadcast represents another recording of our great airline's history as told by its people. Many of our stories are taken from publications such as The Wings of Man, The Wings of Many, *Repartee*, the magazine of the retired Eastern Pilots Association, Pitcairn Newswing, and the Silverliners magazine, and many other books and publications. The jacket or dust cover as it is sometimes referred to uh, of the Wings of Man book, which we find many of our stories, states the dedication of the book. It reads, In January 1991, Eastern Airlines, once among America's oldest and largest U.S. airlines, ceased operations. This book recalls some of Eastern's proud history, full of aviation firsts, including the legendary air shuttle between New York, Boston, and Washington, routes to Florida, the Caribbean, and Mexico, and the launching of the Boeing 727 and 757 aircraft. Eastern was also a launch customer of the Lockheed L-1011 TriStar and introduced the Airbus A300B, the world's first wide-bodied twin in the United States. During its storied life, Eastern cared for numerous celebrities aboard its famous restaurant flights, replete with Rosenthal, China, laden with sumptuous food, and accompanied by beverages. The future president, John F. Kennedy, was photographed being boarded on a stretcher on Eastern Constellation at Logan Airport, attended faithfully by Eastern stewardesses. First Lady Jackie Kennedy chose Eastern to fly to Acapulco with Babe Ruth and Muhammad Ali were frequent customers. The list is endless. In 1973, President Richard Nixon awarded Eastern service to the Caribbean islands with its acquisition of Caribbean. The airline created a luxury hotel affiliation with Lawrence Rockefeller in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands through Rock Resorts. In addition, Eastern laid the foundation for airport security as we know it today and supported troop movements during World War II and Vietnam. Eastern was the official airline of Walt Disney World. This unique book features many other significant events written by former employees and friends of the airline joining together again to record for posterity their fond remembrances of the airline. Wonderful photographs from Eastern's archives as well as those shared by those who wrote about their experiences with the airline provide the perfect complement. Among the more than 70 stories are recollections about the people who built Eastern, including Captain Eddie Rickenbacker, Floyd Hall, Captain Dick Merrill, Chief Financial Officer Charlie Simons, Vice President Russ Ray, and President Sam Higginbottom. In addition are stories about Eastern's transition from props to the jet era, the fate brought on by deregulation, numerous hijackings, and tragic accidents, including the first fatal accident of a wide-bodied airline, Flight 401, in the Everglades. Also included are recollections of the inauguration of Eastern's Latin America and London routes. Finally, the personal recollections of flight attendants, pilots, and rank-and-file employees from a variety of departments and job functions are featured, many of which have never been previously told. This book is dedicated to all those Eastern Airlines employees who, despite the suffering caused by the often adversarial relationship between the workforce and management during its last years, maintain such a high degree of camar- com- camaraderie that retiree organizations such as EARA, REPA, and the Silverliners continue to thrive today, 25 years after the bitter shutdown of service. Now, here to read additional stories from this book and other publications that we mention are Harry and Linda Lindquist. Harry was a former pilot crew scheduler. I'm Neil Holland, assisting in the broadcast as producer and the host of the show. I was a former pilot based in Atlanta for most of my career with Eastern. We hope you enjoy these memories shared by the authors of the stories. Harry or Linda, let's get started with tonight's episode.
2: Here's another amazing story about Captain Eddie from the book, The Captain to the Colonel, by Robert J. Serling. Did you ever make a such a huge mistake in your job or your career that you thought it was going to cost you your entire livelihood, everything you owned? Well, even though Captain Eddie was a shrewd man, he once did such a thing. Let's, let's listen to how that turned out for Captain Eddie, though. His unpredictability was something competitors feared. The classic example was his bid for a Houston-Brownsville mail contract submitted before the Civil Analytics Act of 1938 became law. There was great pressure on the post office department not to award any more new contracts while the new act was pending, and to circumvent the possibility, he taught Congressman Richard Clayburgh of Texas into introducing a special bill that authorized bidding for the Houston-San Antonio route via Brownsville. Much to the dismay of virtually the entire airline industry, the Clayburg bill sailed through Congress and Rickenbacker had his foot in the door. His opposition was Braniff, owned by Tom and Paul Braniff, whose influential Texas friends included Jesse Jones, later to become chairman of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, and a power in both Texas and national politics. Rickenbacker knew him, too, and because of his own friendship with Jones, committed a boner that almost cost him the Brownsville Award. He had stopped in to visit Jones at the latter's Washington office, and Jones almost casually asked him what he was going to bid on the route. Just as casually, EVR replied, Well, if we have to, we'll go as low as a cent per mile. Not until Rickenbacker had left did he realize what he had done. Jones was almost certain to relay Eastern's planned bid to Tom Braniff. He confessed that what he had done to Paul Bertain, who sympathized but couldn't offer any suggestion for undoing the damage. I've really loused it up, the captain muttered. All Braniff has to do is bid less than a cent, or just match us. With Tom Braniff's political clout, he could damned well win if we bid the same figure. Less than a cent is zero, Bertain pointed out. Rickenbacker's eyes flashed. "Paul, I think I'll go ask Smith Gambrel and the rest of our legal brains whether we could get away with a zero bid." The aforementioned legal brains unanimously concluded there were precedents for the government accepting services from private contractors for exactly nothing. On the day the sealed bids were opened in the office of Charles Graddock, Superintendent of Airmail for the Post Office Department, Rickenbacker was present with a pertain. Tom Braniff was also there, along with officials of other carriers seeking the route. Bids were opened alphabetically, and Braniff was first. Their bid was 0.00001907378. There were a few laughs and an equal number of groans, the latter from representatives of airlines, which obviously hadn't dared to go that low. Assistant Postmaster General William Howe then opened Eastern's bid and did a fast double-take. Eastern bids zero, zero, zero cents, he gulped. Tom Braniff jumped to his feet. That's illegal, he roared. The hell it is, Rickenbacker said with the satisfied expression of a crapshooter who was just rolled his tenth consecutive pass. It was very legal, of course so legal that when Braniff went as high as President Roosevelt in an effort to hold up certification of the Brownsville Award until the new act could go into effect. The Post Office Department's own lawyers informed Jim Farley that he had no authority to delay the Eastern Award. Braniff refused to surrender, getting community leaders and the cities involved to protest to FDR and Farley. Rickenbacker was making a speech in Brownsville when he got word that Tom Braniff was going to appear before the Houston Chamber of Commerce Board of Directors later that afternoon. He cut short his Brownsville remarks and flew to Houston, arriving just as Braniff was winding up his own talk. Rickenbacker listened outside the boardroom and grimaced when he heard Braniff argue that Eastern would destroy Braniff Airways, a Texas operation, he kept repeating. EDR finally talked his way into the room as permitted delivery rebuttal. He opened up by reminding his audience that Braniff was based in Oklahoma City, not Texas, then concluded with this promise. Gentlemen, and that includes you too, Tom, you simply do not realize the vast potential of your own state and community. There is enough business here for both Braniff and Eastern to prosper. If you really seriously feel that additional airmails, air service would destroy the existing service provided by Braniff, let me make this statement: I'm willing to guarantee you and Tom Braniff here and now that should the day ever come that he is carrying one passenger less on average than he has been carrying all along, then I will take our own sales staff off the job here in Houston and turn them over to Braniff Airways. I make that guarantee in good faith before witnesses. The board voted to support Eastern, and the new Texas route made EAL the nation's third-biggest carrier in terms of route knowledge. That Houston incident was pure Rickenbacker, vintage 1938, an audacious gambler with the courage of his convictions. The time would come when he would not be so generous toward competition, when he would blame everyone but himself for his own mistakes. But in the first year of his regime, and in subsequent years, Before changing industry left his ilk wallowing in the mud of outmoded thinking and methods, he was one giant of a man. It is an almost forgotten and vastly underrated historical fact that in 1938, Eastern became the first U.S. airline to go off federal subsidy. Rickenbacker had kept the promise he had made to Ernie Breach.
0: Eastern is the shuttle airline.
2: It's second nature to me to take the Eastern Shuttle. I wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but
0: they're
2: the people I just go to.
0: And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines.
2: I think the Eastern Shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements.
1: Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus.
2: You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. Let's hear about another former CEO of Eastern Airlines by the name of Floyd Hall. This story is taken from the book, The Wings of Man. It's titled, Titan of the Airline Industry Celebrates His 96th Birthday by Paul Busquet. Floyd Hall, former South Woodstock resident and airline industry legend, is quietly celebrating his 96th birthday this week with family and friends as his residence in Merton's house. After graduating from college, the Lamar, Colorado native joined TWA as a first officer in 1940 after learning to fly during his two-year commitment to the Army Air Corps. Recalled to service during World War II, he rose to the rank of lieutenant colonel. Following his discharge in 1945, Hall rejoined TWA as a captain and pilot for 10 years before being named supervisor of flying in 1956. During this time he studied for his MBA at the University of Michigan. His graduate thesis, Profit Plan for Commercial Airlines, was defining the subject that was to shape Hall's career. It became the template for a profitable airline. Two years later, in 1958, Hall was named to TWA's executive staff and promoted to general manager. The following year, he was elected vice president in charge of flight operations then to vice president and general transportation manager. Eastern Airlines had been purchased from General Motors in 1938 by the legendary Eddie Rickenbacker. Prior to GM being forced to divest its airline interest, Rickenbacker had worked for GM as the head of Eastern. His $3.5 million purchase was accomplished with the help of a $250,000 loan from Woodstock benefactor Lawrence Rockefeller. As the fortunes of Eastern Airlines soured in the late 50s, Reckenbacher relinquished his position as CEO to Malcolm McIntyre, a noted attorney. While he possessed a bright mind, McIntyre's lack of knowledge of the airline industry had soon become evident. Ernest Breach, considered among the world's outstanding 20th century business leaders, was named CEO of TWA in 1963. Recognizing Hall's experience, talent, and leadership abilities, Breach named him to the Board of Directors. Credited with the vast improvement in TWA's physical management, Hall was appointed Senior Vice President and System General Manager. Implementation of Hall's profit plan for airlines helped turn around the fortunes of TWA. From a $7 million deficit for the first nine months of 1962, the airline generated $12 million profit the corresponding period the following year. Such a remarkable turnaround did not escape the notice of another major airline. Eastern Airlines was faced with financial challenge and in search of a new leadership in 1963. That search for a new CEO led to the talent hall displayed at TWA. He was approached by a Committee of Eastern Board members. Meeting to discuss the matter with his TWA boss, friend and mentor, Ernie Breach said, your time has come. That said, Hall accepted from the Board of Eastern its offer to become CEO and President in November 1963. Not wanting to interfere with corporate matters, Rickenbacker resigned as Chairman of Eastern at the end of December 1963. Hall continued his friendship and association with Rickenbacker throughout his association with Eastern. Immediately following the thorough three-month survey of routes, stations, and systems, all assembled an outstanding team of experienced professionals in March 1964. Among the leaders was Charlie Simons, now a resident of Woodstock, who was named CFLO of the organization. Faced with expenses exceeding revenues, the team took a bold step in initiating Operation Bootstrap, an all-out program of new solutions to old problems. The challenge of the plan involved five major aspects service, reliability, sales, cost, and image. Hall realized that it was the people of Eastern who would make the difference in the fortunes of the company. He inspired all personnel from line crews mechanics to baggage handlers and aircraft crews to work as one to raise the fortunes of the airline. Hall offered incentives to employees contributing to any objectives. The company staged family functions for personnel at its major stations to nurture increased morale. It was supported by cash rewards of varying degrees for random acts of kindness. For its part, management embarked on an aggressive marketing program to provide generous room for passengers, create a new look for the airline, upgrade the uniforms and training of stewardesses, and personnel in contact with customers. Utilize Rosenthal China and Stemware and Reef and Barton Flatware for its first-class service. Contracts with premier restaurants like New York's fame was in to provide flight food, and improved on-time performance. The result of this all-out effort was that within months, Eastern moved to the top of the list of airlines in on-time performance. The service dramatically improved, cost reduced, and flights made more efficient, and a whole new look. Travelers chose Eastern in greater numbers. Operation Bootstrap Its focus on improving services with every person involved with Eastern, taking a personal share of the load, lifted the company out of a spiraling $19 million deficit in 1963 to a $30 million profit by 1965. Eastern was the first airline to launch the Boeing 727 Whisperjet in late '63. It proved a fast, comfortable, and efficient factory, as Hall prefers to call aircraft an ideal medium-range aircraft. Two years after taking over the leadership of Eastern, Hall was invited to be the guest speaker at the Newcomen Society, an international society for the study of history of engineering and technology in New York City. The pre-dinner reception was hosted by such industry giants as William Allen, president of the Boeing Company, Donald Douglas Jr., president of Douglas Aircraft, Cortland Gross, chairman of Lockheed Aircraft, and H.M. Homer, Chairman of United Aircraft. Introduced by his friend Lawrence Rockefeller, Hall delivered a speech entitled Sunrise at Eastern, The Rebirth of a Pioneer Airline. With the advent of Jet Aircraft, Hall additioned from its original and less profitable short haul structure by successfully petitioning the Federal Aviation Agency to become a Trans-Pacific Airline with nonstop service to Hawaii and the Far East. In 1970 Eastern was the sole airline to report increased traffic leading to transition from piston driven to the jet aircraft age more intense airline competition traffic con- congestion at arrival destination airports delayed aircraft deliveries coupled with costly maintenance of certain aircraft engines posed challenges throughout Hall's term as leader of Eastern in December 1975 He resigned from the airline while continuing to serve as a member of the executive board of the International Air Transport Association for another four years before retiring and moving to South Woodstock. In addition to serving as president of the American Management Association, a partial list of his directorships included the Royal Bank of Canada, New York Telephone Company, Cluett Peabody and Company, the Royal Bank of Canada, and First National Bank of Miami. He was a member of a host of divorce organizations including the Council of Consumer Affairs, the Metropolitan Opera Association, Augusta National Golf Club, Mid-Ocean Club in Bermuda, and the Blink Book Club. From Hall's boyhood dream of flying realized in 1929 as a passenger aboard the first transcontinental flight in the United States by T.W.A. and piloted by his brother, his career soared to the boardrooms of two of the world's major airlines, while leading one to the pinnacle of success, success. To this day, testament of the love and appreciation former employees have for Hall is expressed in the dozens of cards sent to him each holiday and in the laptop computer presented to him last Christmas by the retired Eastern Airline Pilots Association. Uh, just a side note, uh, Floyd Hall died April the 5th, 2012 peacefully in the sleep aware that the airline industry started out carrying the mail under contract to the US government, but then airlines evolved into passenger carrier operations. Here's a little history of just how that evolvement occurred. This is from the book uh, From the Captain to the Colonel by Ray Robert Sterling. Uh, Chapter six is entitled Growing Pains. He was 48 years old when he fused his own personality policies, and philosophy into an inanimate object known as an airline. His official title was President and General Manager. Unofficially, he was the Captain, and that title was synonymous with absolute authority. No airline chief executive had more autonomy or greater power. He was a dictator with the saving grace of sentimentality, a corporate potentate with a conscience and egotistical autocrat with a strange streak of humility, a feudal baron demanding total allegiance, yet not quite capable of suppressing both affection for and a sense of responsibility toward the serfs. They quelled under his wrath, feared his mercurial temper, and still managed to love him for the very qualities that made him so difficult to work with. In so many ways, he was a quintessence of leadership in an industry struggling not just for profits, but for respect, trust, and recognition. It's too easy to forget in these days of 300 million passengers a year, when the airplane has become a means of mass transportation, that the airlines of the late 1930s needed their Rickenbackers with their heavy-handed strength, their single-minded determination, their dogged resilience under the worst adversity. Eastern was no exception. In 1938, it had just over 1,000 employees and 22 airplanes, 10 DC-2s, 10 DC-3s, and a pair of single-engine Stinson Reliance. The payroll was only 180000 a month, which averaged out to $180 per person. One had to be get dedicated to work for an airline, but there was the name of the game in those days, and it was definitely true at Eastern, where the average employee wore five hats and constant demonstration of job versatility. Eventually, Eastern would be the first airline to work a 40-hour week, and also the first to have a pension plan. Rickenbacker had that much in common with Delta CE woman and staving off unionism by staying ahead of labor's demands. But the industry owes incalculable debt to the gung-ho spirit of its men and women during the crucial crucial growing years before World War II. And they were precisely that, growing years. In 1938, Congress completely overhauled the Air, Act, Air Mail Act of 1934 and forged the new operating blueprint for the U.S. airlines known as the Civil Aeronautics Act. It was a commercial aviation milestone that ended the quarrelsome, clumsy system of dividing regulatory authority over the airlines among three federal agencies, the Post Office Department, Mail Contracts and Routes, Interstate Commerce Commission, Mail Rates and Fares, and the Bureau of Air Commerce. Safety, operation of airways, and pilot and aircraft licensing. The act created a five-member Civil Aeronautics Authority, which took over all the aforementioned functions. The once all-powerful Post Office Department retained only its authority to approve airmail schedules, but not contracts. The legislation also established within the CAA a three-man safety board charged with the responsibility of investigating air accidents and armed, armed with complete independence. Experience quickly showed that the new law concentrated excessive power in a single agency, and within two years the act was amended. The CAA became the Civil Aeronautics Board, regulating routes and fares, while a separate Civil Aeronautics Administration was established within the Commerce Department, assuming authority over civilian aviation operating matters. The Safety Board lost its independence and became part of the CAB. Overall, however, the 1938 Act brought stability and reasonable regulation to an industry that had been walking a tightrope between czar-like controls and government permissiveness. Preceding this passage was a $7 million dollar allocation for airways modernization, An exchange for which the airlines gladly welcomed stricter safety rules and more efficient accident investigation. And perhaps the act's major significance lay in the post office department's almost total removal from airline regulatory matters. It was tacit recognition that people, and not mail packs, controlled the industry's destiny. Passenger revenues were steadily approaching the level of airmail income, and in two years would surpass them. Today, passenger revenues are 65 times greater than those from mail. Without any doubt, the DC-3 was the instrument of this revolution that ended airline dependence on mail pay. It was, as American C.R. Smith put it, the first airplane that could make money just carrying people. Rickenbacker himself was not slow to grasp what Donald Douglas had achieved in his technological miracle of symmetrical metal that provided so much more reliability safety, and economic efficiency. Not unlike the DC-3 did flight insurance become available to air travelers. $5,000 worth of protection for 25 cents, a development on which Time Magazine commented that insurance companies can now bet $5,000 to 2 bits, which is 25 cents, against a passenger being killed on a flight of some 800 miles is one of the best pieces of publicity the US airlines ever had. After a long business trip, the last thing you need is a hassle at the airport. That's why Eastern has one-time check-in. It's like going from the curb directly to your plane. Because Eastern can give you boarding passes for your entire trip the first time you check in. One-time check-in, Eastern's way of wishing you many happy returns.
0: But while the Condor left several things to be desired technically, it was a passenger's dream. The Model 18 and the slightly earlier Fokker F-12 were the first wide-bodied airliners introduced to the American public. EAT's condors had carpeting, reading lights, curtains, and a galley with an ice box. detachable tables, and one section of the cabin was designated as a card room. It had facing seats on either side of a coffee table. The final and most welcome touch was a flight attendant, female. United had introduced women cabin attendants in the spring of 1930, and it didn't take the rest of the industry long to realize that United had stumbled on the greatest air travel promotion gimmick since Kitty Hawk. He, Eastern's hierarchy was divided on its desirability. Elliot straddled with the fence. Dolan, speaking for virtually every pilot, was adamantly opposed. Keyes leaned toward the affirmative, and Doe's mind was made up for him by his wife. She was a forceful and positive woman from all accounts. She not only convinced her husband to hire flight attendants, but went out and recruited one of the first candidates herself, Mildred Johnson, the debutante daughter of a friend. Eastern's own records, however, list Marion Cook of Meadville, Pennsylvania, as the first hiree. Miss Johnson was among the initial seven, and so was a Mildred Aldrin, whose nephew Buds would one day walk on the moon. There was a considerable debate over what to call the girls, among the suggested titles were heiress, 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 Corette, and hostess. Eastern finally followed United's practice of designating them as stewardesses. Some early company records refer to the hostesses, but apparently this designation was temporary. There were some 10,000 applicants, and only 22 were chosen. All but the original seven ended up with ground jobs until flight positions opened up. The qualifications were stiff, a lot stiffer than the training, which was non-existent. Eastern accepted only unmarried women, under 28, the height limit was 5 feet 4 inches, and weight was 123 pounds. An applicant had to either be a registered nurse or a college graduate a prerequisite which few of them understood once they went to work on the menial task assigned to flight attendants in the 1930s. Cook got an inkling of what to expect the day she was hired. There's one thing you have to know, she was told. Treat all the passengers as if the airplane was your living room. That's all? Well, of course that's all. What the hell more do you need? Well, I assume there'd be some training in You've just finished your training, Miss Cook. That wasn't quite true. The girls had on-the-job training. The basic tasks were simple. They handled out gum, cotton for the ears, and newspapers. Also, ammonia capsules when they were needed, which was only too frequently inasmuch as sainting ran a fairly close second to air sickness. Meal service in the initial days of the condor service was limited to coffee and donuts which was spurned by most passengers because they were afraid of getting airsick. Even refueling became an occasional stewardess' duty. If the station was short-handed, the girls would become part of the bucket, the bucket brigade. Fuel trucks were not always available. They helped load and unload baggage. They punched tickets. They cleaned the cabins, which could look like a post-invasion beachhead after a very rough flight and they always carried railroad timetables for those who decided air travel was for the birds and wanted to transfer to a train at the next stop. A stewardess never knew when she might even be asked to help push a plane into the hangar after a trip. The Condors carried a large clock, an airspeed indicator, and an altimeter in the cabin for the information of passengers who might be interested in knowing that at 1 p.m. They were cruising at 130 miles an hour at the astronomical altitude of 3,000 feet. The stewardesses had to set the clock before every trip and adjust the altimeter to the proper barometric pressure. For all this, they were paid $125 a month, and their flying time was limited to not more than 40 hours a month. A schedule which today would send every flight attendant straight to his or her union with a major grievance. The pilots, or most of them, resented them at first, but gradually resentment turned to grudging respect and even affection. They discovered, for example, that the girls were blessed with a collective sense of humor, and this was a major virtue in a world where crisis and adversity were a way of life. worship the sun. Today, in Acapulco, what was once a primitive religion has become a fine art. Acapulco. Prices are now so low, you can vacation in Acapulco this year for the same kind of money you spent on last year's vacation.
2: Call Eastern
0: or your travel agent. See how easy it is to take the vacation you thought you couldn't take. We make it easier to fly.
2: Mm-hmm. Regular listeners of this radio broadcast know we tell the story of Eastern through the people of Eastern Airlines. Um, we're going to have an excerpt from this book, From the Captain to the Colonel, by Robert Serling. We're going to hear about um, some early day pilots. You know, many pilots started as barnstormers. Uh, Then maybe they got into uh, flying airmail. Then maybe they became uh, commercial airline captains. Some of these names we've heard before. Some of them we haven't. Pilots in particular were prime sources for the stories and anecdotes that have become part of airline history. The yarns and the characters are interchangeable. For airmen, regardless of which airline uniform they're wearing, are a breed apart anyway. A wonderfully wacky individualist at Eastern would have a counterpart in American, Western, Continental, and just about every other carrier. And Eastern did have its characters, especially in the DC-3 days, when the unsophisticated equipment seemed to generate uninhibited pilots. An all-time EAL favorite was Herman Wilhelm, known to all as Herman the German. He was a huge, gruff man, and his vocabulary was populated largely by the finest collection of 4 words east of Dodge City. Herman was based in Chicago and had a farm in nearby Joliet. He once put a DC-3 down on a landing strip he had carved out close to the farm and invited all 20 passengers aboard into his house for hot, hot, hot coffee. My wife makes better coffee than what you get on the plane, he explained with devastating logic. Nineteen of his guests considered this unscheduled landing a commercial aviation highlight, but the 20th reported Captain Wilhelm to the company, and he got two weeks off without pay. He never landed an eastern plane again on his farm, but he flew over it at low altitudes countless times. When radar came along, Chicago controllers invariably would see Herman disappear from their scopes right after takeoff. Normally, this would have rung every alarm bell in the ATC system, but not when it was Captain Wilhelm. They knew he was heading for an aerial check of the farm. He never identified a flight by its assigned number, and never had to. Every controller knew his booming voice, capable of producing more decibels than the champion hog collars. Heat radio, what's doing down there? Answer would come back, hi Herman, do you need a clearance? The controllers loved him and he was one of the comparatively few pilots who appreciated the job they were doing and the difficulties under which they labored. He staged an annual corn roast on his farm and invited every controller in the Chicago area. Whoever was off duty showed up. In gratitude, they named a radio checkpoint after him, Wilhelm Intersection. When Eastern eventually got stewardesses back, Herman's vocabulary caused immediate problems. To call it salty would be a hopelessly inadequate description. One flight attendant, warned in advance, told him not to use bad language in front of her. What's wrong with my language, he demanded indignantly. I've heard it's full of profanity. Now who the hell told you that crap, Herman roared. Art St. John was another Eastern pilot cut out of the Wilhelm mold. He was death on newly married pilots who would confide shyly and proudly. Art, I just got married to a wonderful girl. Great, Saint John would reply. Got any dirty pictures ever? Of course not. Want to buy some? Art would leer. Then there was a captain named Max Marshall, who had suffered through an unhappy love affair with a girl who had always worn a distinctive perfume. When the romance ended, Marshall suddenly acquired a phobia about any perfumed aroma. No stewardess assigned to his flight dared wear any, and every co-pilot quickly learned to abstain even from after-shave lotion. A new first officer's first glimpse of Captain Marshall was startling. He would enter the cockpit and sniff the throttles to check on any residue of odor from the previous occupant's hands. A longtime favorite was Irvy Bala, whose career with Eastern dated back to the mail wings. When EAL meteorologist Joe George wrote a pamphlet on the new air mass method of forecasting weather, copies were put in pilot mailboxes. Irvy took his out and tossed it in a wastebasket. Aren't you going to read it? An agent asked him. Hell no, Irby he said. There'll be days you can fly and days when you can't. Slim Babbitt was another character. Unlike Wilhelm, he spent his long and honorable airline career feuding with air traffic control and used to wage a particular vendetta against the Jacksonville Tower personnel. One night, he deliberately turned off the landing lights on his DC-3 and as he neared Jacksonville, he began radioing. Eastern, 20 miles out. 15 miles out, 10, 5, the controllers peered into the blackness, trying in vain to spot him. Finally, Babbitt message, Eastern one mile from field and turned on his lights. Roger, Jacksonville acknowledged you're cleared to land. And they turned out every light on the field. It's customary today for many pilots to live in one city, but fly out of bases hundreds or even thousands of miles from their homes. Air travel has reached such a stage of reliability that such commuting is entirely feasible and quite common. It wasn't that reliable in the DC-3 area, but some pilots did commute, including one EAL captain named Bob Boswell, who resided in Philadelphia but flew out of the Newark base. Boswell was reported for sneaking aboard several American Philadelphia-Newark flights without a pass, and John Gill, then chief pilot at Newark, called him in. While Gil was cheering him out, Boswell kept glancing nervously at his watch. Quit that, Gil snapped. What the hell's wrong? I wish you'd hurry up, Johnny Boswell pleaded. Americans got a flight leaving in ten minutes. The roll call could go on and on. Gil Waller looked more like a jockey than an airline captain with his five-foot-six-inch height. He used to punish himself if anything went wrong on a flight, such as the time he walked up and down a ramp with a parachute strapped to his back like an air corps cadet doing a 50 demerit punishment tour, If he thought he had flown a bad trip, he would walk all the way from the airport to his layover hotel, carrying a suitcase and brain bag containing navigation maps. Once he forgot the brain bag when he was halfway downtown and trudged back to the airport for it. Olden King had a high, rather effeminate voice, completely out of keeping with his burly physique. He was built like a butcher, which he actually had been once. Co-pilots hated to fly with Olin on any DC-2 trip. He always would assure his DC cockpit companion, Now today, I'm going to let you do the takeoff. They'd start rolling, the happy co-pilot clinging to the yoke. Just as they broke ground, he'd yell, Gear up! And King would reply, Okay, I've got the yoke, leaving the other to perform the hernia-inducing job of raising the gear. After struggling up to cruising altitude, Olin would wrap himself in a blanket and instruct the co-pilot, Wake me up when we're ready to land. Most co-pilots tried to let him sleep so they could make the landing, but King seemed to have an altimeter planted in his brain. He would always wake up before final approach. The favorite of the younger pilots was Dick Merrill. He was one of the easiest-going captains who ever commanded an airplane and never seemed to get mad at anybody. No matter how inept, erring, or outright stupid the Greenhorn, Merrill would slap him on the back after the trip and solemnly assure him, you're the best damn co-pilot I've ever flown with. It must be added, however, that the inept, erring, and stupid either shaped up fast or they were finished. Not every captain was as tolerant of mistakes as Merrill, and Eastern's pilots overall ranked high in the industry. Maybe I'm a bit prejudiced, John Halliburton says, but I honestly believe we had a reputation for having the best bad-weather pilots in the country. Tom Brutton, now Senior Vice President of Flight Operations, had a, an a line captain before he went to manage it, a management agrees with Halliburton. Eastern always was a pilot's airline, he maintains. The brass hats from Captain Eddie on down let each captain run his own show, and to some extent that's still true. I think an Eastern captain has more control over his flight, more freedom of operation than any other airline. They were, and most of them, remain rugged individualists because that's the way Captain Eddy wanted it. I can remember other pilots standing with their noses against operation windows and watching Eastern planes landing when they were grounded. It was all legal. If the tower gave you an indefinite ceiling, it means you could make one pass at the runway. Halliburton and Butkin may be biased, but it is a fact that Eastern really was known for its ability to operate safely in the worst kind of weather. At any airport, Eastern served It was not uncommon to find planes in the Great Silver Fleet landing and taking off, while agents at the counters of other carriers were posting canceled due to weather or delayed because of weather on their flight information boards. This winter you need all the summer you can get. eastern airlines new personalized vacation planning you can have a vacation as unique as you are talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar get the most summer this winter from eastern the wings
0: of man this is a flight attendant's career by marge porter lyles in 1954 I was wanting to travel, so this young adventurer applied for a position with the State Department. Second thoughts of experiencing homesickness while maybe stationed in a distant land, I enrolled instead in the McConnell Airlines School in Minnesota, reasonably that I could more easily get home to Maryland if I was stationed in North America. Thus, serendipity led to a long and satisfying career as a flight attendant with Eastern. Shortly into training, an Eastern representative came to interview flight attendants, then called stewards and stewardesses. Although one of the six lucky students to be hired, I hesitated because the base offered was Miami and I wanted to stay in the North. I wanted to fly with Northwest or Transworld Airlines. But my brother Hal worked for an aircraft manufacturer, the Glenn L. Martin Company. Discussing my dilemma with him, Hal encouraged take the Eastern position being offered. I fly frequently and I always check the CAA, now called the FAA reports, every month and Eastern always leads the list. I heeded his advice and in my fourth year with Eastern I met my husband Lou who was involved with the engine overhaul division. I soon realized the reason for my brother's high recommendation Lou possessed an attitude that prevailed from Captain Eddie Rickenbacker himself. Down through the ranks of flight crews and service employees, the priority to put safety first above all else. Aviation got into my blood and I flew with Eastern until our marriage in 1963. My best memories of flying are of the people I met, especially the passengers, who were wonderful. In the nine years of flying with thousands of people, there were only two that I found objectionable. Each appeared on the flights during my final weeks with Eastern. The first was a devoted customer of National Airlines, which was on strike. It forced him to fly with Eastern. He was agitated with everyone from reservations to ticket counter and now me seated in the first class section of our beautiful golden falcon dc-7 he complained throughout the entire meal service loudly telling the whole cabin the reasons for his disgruntlement comparing eastern unfavorably with national toward the end of the flight he gave us his finale i hope i never have to fly eastern airlines again i stopped in my tracks and turned to him with this terse reply well sir "'That makes two of us.' "'He never said another word, "'as the other occupants of the cabin "'applauded and cheered. "'We were trained to always smile "'and never be sassy, to our passengers, "'no matter what. "'But that time, a polite response "'was just beyond me. "'A few weeks later, "'in the tail section of the Super G Constellation, "'I met a passenger who insisted "'on having more than his allotted two drinks. Upon boarding the flight, he was obviously already under the influence. He was quite belligerent when refused his third drink, so much so that I explained to him and the five other businessmen who were already seated in that semicircle that the captain could close the bar if there was a problem on board. The five gentlemen smilingly nodded that it was all right with them. My quick trip to the cockpit soon brought an announcement from the captain. He was sorry, but circumstances forced him to stop the cabin crew from serving any more alcoholic drinks. Nobody asked me why, but the man in the back kept complaining loudly any time I necessarily went near his section. Nearing the flight's end, I handed him his coat from the closet, smiled the best smile I could manage, and said, Goodbye, sir. I really am grateful you decided to fly with us today. To his surprised response, he said, You are? I replied, Yes, sir. I'm grateful that you're my passenger and not my husband. Again, approving response. Applause from the rest of the passengers. Neither of those two irate passengers wrote letters of complaint. Had they done so, I was ready to take any punishment for my sassiness. But I do think my supervisors would have understood. One day, a mysterious thing happened before my flight left the gate in Miami. Mysterious because the ramp agent came to tell me that the captain was going to move the airplane to a different gate before departing so a celebrity could come on board who wanted to avoid the press. These were the days of metal stairs being rolled up for boarding. Once at the new gate, an agent carried a huge umbrella across the ramp, shielding Joan Crawford, followed by her new husband, Anthony Steele, who escorted her up the steps. In the 1950s, Joan Crawford was much in the news, not only for her dramatic ability, but also for her marriage to Mr. Steele, who was the corporate head of the Pepsi-Cola company. The day the recently wedded couple boarded our Super G Constellation, she was dressed in a beautiful emerald green silk shirtwaist with her signature wide-brimmed floppy hat. They had purchased the entire front cabin of eight seats, and the caterer had boarded a Pepsi-Cola cooler in that section. An agent put reserve signs on all the seats, Ms. Crawford stopped by my boarding station and whispered a special request. I hadn't realized how truly beautiful she was until that encounter. She said, We have our own cooler on board with our dinner and drinks. We will not need any service. Even though we will light all the call lights in our section, we like their dim light. But please tell the others we don't wish to be disturbed. I agreed to her request and explained that I would have to come through their cabin to serve coffee and dinner to the crew when they requested it. She indicated that she understood. As fate would have it, I had to enter the cockpit just as the couple was drinking a champagne toast with their arms entwined. They didn't blink and neither did I. Though not so glamorous, perhaps one of my sweetest memories may be found in the following stories. An elderly Russian mother, suffering dementia, was boarded by her daughter in Miami, slated for a six-month stay in Philadelphia with her son. The steward in charge asked me to elderset this passenger all night because as the engines roared for takeoff, she had gone to the back door, purse and shawl in hand, inquiring, Philadelphia? This continued several times as though she had boarded a city bus. That night, equipped with only the photos and ads in a Life magazine, we found a pleasant way to communicate in that favorite spot of circled seats in the tail section. She had a moment of intense clarity upon viewing a Smirnoff vodka ad depicting a handsome elderly couple seated at a piano. Excitedly, she dug into the bottom of her carpetbag-type purse. With happy tears, she produced a wrinkled snapshot of herself and her husband. The resemblance was remarkable i regretted her leaving us the next morning in philly feeling as if i'd made a friend one stormy night a group of 25 non-english speaking japanese businessmen boarded eastern's new type constellation the super c for a 20-minute hop from cleveland to detroit to connect to their flight back to tokyo this trip was challenging but fun According to their only interpreter, Thomas Mazazumi, they had spent several weeks visiting our industrial sites and were now longing to return home. Unfortunately, a fierce snowstorm prevented our landing in Detroit. We spent several hours, sometimes airborne, often grounded, due to the weather's capricious closing of two airports. Each time one closed, the captain announced the changes. I had Tom repeat the messages in Japanese over the public address system. The exhausted passengers grew wearier and a bit agitated during the several hours of this dilemma, fearing they would miss their connection. Finally, the last time on the ground in Cleveland, I decided to to do my version of the Japanese tea service on our small white eastern trays with our famous package of cookies and paper cups of Lipton tea. This brought smiles all around, and even though we were given the signal to taxi, the captain graciously declined to take off in the middle of my tea ceremony, thus avoiding an international incident. The highlight for the group was upon landing in Detroit when their Caucasian-American stewardess's voice came joyfully over the PA, speaking her very best Japanese. Tom has spent the evening teaching me the phonetic pronunciation of my apologies with a fond farewell, asking them to remember their safe delivery from Cleveland to Detroit one snowy winter night and to please fly Eastern again. Imagine the surprise of all, including the six American passengers who joined in the applause and laughter. In my fourth year of flying, my wish to greet Captain Eddie was granted. He busily worked his way through a briefcase full of papers on a trip from New York to Miami. During his only time out for dinner, he invited me to sit and chat. During our conversation, I thanked him for giving all Eastern employees a subscription to Guidepost magazine, and I allowed him to break his own rule and have a third scotch and water. During my last six months of flying, Cornelia, Corey, Tenboom, the Dutch evangelist boarded my favorite aircraft, the Martin 404. Corrie authored, authored The Hiding Place and other books explaining how she survived the Holocaust in Auschwitz concentration camp during World War II. That day she challenged me to broaden my knowledge of the Lord and the Bible. She prepared me for a wonderful ecumenical marriage to Lou who undoubtedly became the most important passenger I met during my flying days with the Eastern Airlines. Thank you, Captain Eddie, who literally connected us. Come with us to a place where the cold ends and the warm begins. Eastern's winter wonderland. It starts in Florida
2: the sun of the Bahamas and Puerto Rico, where white is the color of warm sand, not cold snow. To Jamaica, where fish climb rocks. find the
0: place and price that's right for you. Come, Eastern's Winter Wonderland
1: is waiting. Wow, it's been another evening listening to the fascinating stories and memories of a great airline, Eastern. We have plenty more to come during this series of broadcasts, and we hope you are enjoying reliving the times we spent with this legendary company of men and women keeping the great fleet of aircraft in the air and making it one of the largest carriers in the free world. There are so many stories still out there that we want to share with you. It can be one of your stories or memories, if you would only tell us. You can do that by writing your story and emailing it to us so that it can be read during one of our future broadcasts. You can email it to e Holland at yahoo.com. That's E Neil N E A L Holland at Yahoo.com. And we'll do the rest. Of course, we'll let you know when it will be broadcast. You can also record it in your own voice and send to us at the same email address, Holland at Yahoo.com. It must be sent in an MP3 file. Most computers will default recording the recordings in that format, or a WAV file. These are the only two formats of voice recordings that our broadcasting server will accept. If you want more information about how to do the recordings, you can call me, Neil Holland, at 904-866-8114 and I'll be happy to walk you through the process. It's very easy, and you'll be sharing more of your memories of our beloved airlines in our broadcast. You'll be taking part in telling the story of Eastern Airlines. Well, that's about all we have for you tonight. And on behalf of Harry, Linda, and myself, we hope you'll be back for more memories of a great airline, Eastern, next week, at the same time, 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, and station blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. Now, good night, Eastern family. We'll see you next week.